0: Hello, hello once more, and welcome back to another episode of Insincerely Yours with your host, Janvi. If you haven't caught up, I recommend that you do not listen to episode one because it is trash. Um, But if you do want to listen to it, and then you listen to episode two, you will note that episode two is better than episode one. So again, don't listen to episode one, it's trash. Two and three are okay. I'm still working on it. But this is episode four, which is part two of an idea I had about exploring the origins of popular American foods that started off with apple pie in part one, because I love apple pie. Um, If you want to listen to my ranting on that, you can listen to episode three. And this um, part two was going to be similar in style to the part one about apple pie, but I actually decided to do something a little bit different. Instead of focusing on specific dishes, I decided to focus on specific ingredients that are common to some of my favorite, quote, American foods. Um, So yeah, I'm actually going to be doing this a little bit more freeform than I had originally planned. Uh, So excuse my ums and ahs and all that kind of filler as I'm trying to be better at improv. I do have... A set of bullet points. I'm actually trying that again. I told my friend that bullet points didn't work for me, but this was way back in the day. So I figured I might as well try now since I'm older, maybe a little bit wiser, you know, see if something new or in this case, something old will work for me again. So here we go. The first thing I want to talk about is chocolate. Chocolate shows up in a lot of different you know, foods around the world, but there's quote American chocolate like Hershey's and Kit Kat. We've got Oreos. Um, We've got the ever famous chocolate chip cookies. Chocolate chip cookies is actually what was the thing that I was gonna talk about, but I decided not to do that. So let me tell you a little bit about chocolate. Chocolate's origins are in Mexico. It is thousands of years old with the earliest evidence being as early as 1750 BC and the pre Olmec peoples. Cocoa, the cocoa tree has a bunch of species that are native to Central and South America. So a lot of these ancient cultures in the Americas had their own version of, you know, different kinds of cocoa recipes, not just in drinks, but as well as in foods. And it was introduced to Europe by the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes in the early 1500s. I'm not going to rehash that whole bit. I'm sure everybody uh, remembers some parts from history classes in middle school and high school. But um, once, you know, Cortez and his, I guess people introduced it to Europe, it became wildly popular over the next few hundred years, which resulted actually in driving the slave trade even more because of how time and energy consuming processing cocoa beans was. Um, So that actually resulted in a a lot more slaves being transported from Africa to the Americas because so many of the natives were killed off by European diseases. Um, While the Europeans were bringing more slaves into the Americas to process not just cocoa, but sugar and a bunch of other crops as well, um, the Portuguese actually took cocoa species to Africa, particularly Ghana, sometime in the 1800s. So today, a majority of the world's cocoa is actually produced in West Africa. Um, In particular, Cote d'Ivoire, my pronunciation is terrible. Um, and Ghana, which together account for about 60% of the world's cocoa supply. If you actually you might not know, um, but child labor is a huge issue in cocoa production, particularly in Africa, um, especially because there are very high estimates of children being victims of child trafficking as well as uh, slavery. And in total, um, cocoa production around the world is actually a very big industry. And about 50 million people rely on it for survival in some way, whether it's growing the trees, harvesting them, um, processing them, transporting them, exporting them, importing them, you know, basically any kind of step in the entire um, process up until it gets to usually, you know, either North America or Europe. Um, you've probably heard about fair trade cocoa, fair trade chocolates, things like that. And fair trade—the intention of fair trade is was to uh, make sure that the actual individual producers, at least in the, in the case of um, fair trade cocoa, the individual farmers and producers of cocoa, got their fair share of, you know, the 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 profits. Um, but fair trade has actually had mixed results over the past 20 years or so, as sociologists and economists have you know watched how things have gone um, because there's actually very little government oversight of fair trade practices um, especially when middlemen are still involved especially when a lot of these countries corruption is still a huge issue so one of the things that you guys might know about is like french chocolate dutch chocolate belgian chocolate british chocolate obviously um, like i said in the episode about apple pie just like sugar, uh, cocoa actually requires a tropical climate for growth. It cannot survive um, in, very, in areas with cold temperatures. So most of the cocoa producing regions are within a few degrees of the equator, if you look at a map. Um, so when you hear about all these different kinds of European chocolates, obviously the original product was never actually grown anywhere in Europe. Um, when you hear about Belgian or chocolate or Dutch chocolate or French chocolate, that actually refers to the various methods that, you know, the pioneers in the sometimes in the and 1900s of those nationalities. They developed a bunch of methods to process chocolate into the final product. It has to do with, you know, the additional ingredients like emulsifiers and milk solids and sugar, um, as well as heating process, melting process, shaping and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, the actual geographical location as well today. Um, but when you think about European chocolate, look—you can't have European chocolate without all of the work, all of the labor that's going on in Africa and you know uh, South America. Especially when you consider the amount of child labor that actually goes into processing chocolate. Um, a lot of chocolate producers, especially in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire they, you know, signed these token pledges to reduce the amount of child labor by 2020. I think it was supposed to be around 70%. Um, but because a lot of these countries, um, are very poor and a lot of them don't have any funding or refuse to build schools. And because of the increased demand for chocolate farmland for cocoa production is actually expanding. Um, most of these producers who signed this pledge have they're nowhere near meeting that uh, goal of reducing child labor by 70% in the industry. Um, So that is a very, very condensed history of chocolate. Obviously, if you wanna know more, you can hit me up or you can look it up yourself, but it's very interesting. And actually, when I found out about um, the extent of child labor in chocolate production a few years ago, that actually made me reduce my own consumption of chocolate. Um, I actually haven't had, I haven't bought chocolate that much in the past couple of years. And if I do, I try to find, um, you know, again, so a lot of the third party organizations that do look over fair trade, the standards are inconsistent, the enforcement is inconsistent. So you got to do your own research to figure out which one is actually legitimate. Um, so it's it's been a pain to find, you know, decent chocolate, especially when I buy it as souvenirs. Um, but for myself, you know, whenever I indulge, like once or twice a year, I always regret it, because I remember all of this stuff. Um, So I don't know, I know, I can't save the world. And I'm not trying to get people to do the same thing. But I think it's important to think about where our food comes from, especially ingredients that are problematic, especially ingredients like, you know, sugar, like chocolate. Um, But let me not get ahead of myself yet. And let me instead go next to vanilla, um initially like I said my thing that I wanted to focus on was chocolate chip cookies and vanilla is also an ingredient in chocolate chip cookies as well as a bunch of other kinds of cookies that are super popular in America. I mean even when I was in Japan a cookie is automatically associated with America no matter what kind of cookie. Um so vanilla just seemed like a natural ingredient to explore more of. Uh so just like chocolate, va- uh, vanilla Is Vanilla's origin is in Mexico, um, but its earliest cultivation, well, the earliest records that were found um, was in the 15th century by the Totonac Aztec people. Um, And actually Cortez is responsible for introducing both vanilla and chocolate to Europe, um, as I mentioned earlier for the chocolate thing. Uh, Mexico was the chief producer of vanilla until the mid 19th century, when the French actually shipped vanilla fruits to their island colonies of reunion I, th- I think i'm saying that wrong um reunion and mauritius where a slave by the name of edmund albius discovered how to pollinate the flowers quickly by hand um, because other efforts to uh, pollinate vanilla flowers quickly uh, didn't work so that actually dramatically increased their production i think you might have already figured it out but just like sugar and cocoa Vanilla processing from growing it to harvesting it to, um, you know, just extracting the vanilla that was necessary was quite a labor intensive process, especially when you consider how delicate the vanilla plants slash flowers are. Um, So, yes, slavery, again, slavery shows up, of course, it shows up when white people are involved and they want to basically rape the lands. Anyway, (laughs) so slavery was a huge endeavor. Part of the whole vanilla production, um, throughout the 17 through the 18, well, 1800s, like we said, um, in the apple pie discussion, most of the Western world had outlawed slavery by the mid to late 1800s. And by most of the Western world, I mean, America in the 1860s so that's the mid to late 1800s um anyway so after the french introduction of vanilla flowers to um parts of africa they sent more out to other parts including the comoros islands seychelles and madagascar and a lot of you may already be familiar with this um but madagascar accounted for 80 percent of the world's production by 1898 and then of course as the europeans like to do um with a lot of these products that can only be grown in tropical regions, the French actually ended up introducing vanilla to uh, tropical islands in Asia, including Indonesia. So as of 2019, Madagascar is still the largest producer of vanilla, but it only has 41% of the market now. And Indonesia has 30% 30 of the market. It is the second largest producer of vanilla. Um, so as I mentioned, with, just like with sugar and cocoa, it's very labor-intensive process and all the different kinds of vanilla species require tropical climates for survival. So you're not going to see vanilla grown outside of, you know, not too far from the equator in either direction. Something interesting I learned about the pressing for vanilla is that it's uh, the crop is very sensitive to politics and climate. Especially when you consider the countries that it's grown in, those regions of the world um, still have, you know, again, legacies of colonialism, um, but a lot of corruption, a lot of uh, crime, a lot of issues with even government oversight. And, and up until the 70s and 80s, vanilla was really expensive. And then, oh, I guess, over the next two decades, prices had gone down to the point um, where instead of being in the hundreds of dollars per kilo, it was around 40 bucks a kilo by the time the early 2000s started. But with climate change and everything, the most recent price for vanilla per kilogram as of 2018 is actually $515 per kilo, uh, which was way up from, I think it was 40 bucks uh, at the beginning of 2000. And around that same time, silver was $527 a kilo. So it was really interesting for me to learn uh, a, crop like this that's so dependent on so many different issues can be just as expensive you know it might even be more expensive now than silver um just because you know again the crop itself is limited in production and so sensitive in terms of a lot of different factors um so there's you know and just like with with sugar and um a lot of these countries they don't have great labor and wage laws so there's definitely a lot of labor exploitation going on when it comes to the whole processing and When I found out how many steps there are, how truly labor intensive it is, I don't know, it's making me, um, you know, I, so we have a bottle of vanilla that we bought a couple of years ago and we're just, we basically been rationing it. It's uh, supposed to be some good vanilla, but now that I found out all this stuff, I'm going to have to do my own research again, just like I did with chocolate to figure out where's that good, good that doesn't rely on, you know, um, exploiting people. The third and last ingredient I'm going to discuss are chilies as well as hot sauce very briefly, but mostly chili peppers, sorry. I know there's peppercorn as a separate thing entirely, so I just wanted to focus on chili peppers. Um, the reason chili peppers came up as a topic for me is that some of the other popular foods, popular American foods that came up or buffalo wings, of course, um, jambalaya, gumbo, and chili con carne. Um, These last three, I mean, they're not even English, first of all, and I'll get into their actual histories uh, briefly very much later. Um, But yeah, so let me give you a brief history on chili peppers, which also surprised me when I looked it up. Uh, So here we go. They actually originated in the Americas with earliest records of cultivation in northeastern Mexico about six thousand years ago. And different varieties have been grown and used extensively by the ancient Americans um, for thousands of years. And they were actually introduced to Europe by Columbus in the 1490s via his conquest in the Caribbean. We all know how that went, so I don't think I don't I don't need to hash that again. Um, And they spread to Asia, surprisingly enough, I always thought that it was just another one of those natural, you know, ingredients native to Asia, but they're not. So they spread to Asia via the Portuguese um, introduction in India in the 1500s, and Africa via the slave trade through Spain and Portugal. So I guess, thanks colonizers, is this one of the times where... Uh colonialism actually resulted in something positive, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's something for you to decide because I'm honestly, I was surprised when I found this out. Uh, so I don't know, you know, just like thanks Obama, thanks colonizers. Uh, th- there are five domesticated species of chili peppers, but within each species there are many different varieties or cultivars as they're known in scientific speak. Another fun fact I learned during my research on chili peppers is that jalapenos and habaneros are actually each in a different species. And in general, there are three categories of peppers, bell peppers, sweet peppers, and hot peppers. So not only do chili peppers have a long extensive history in the Americas, after their introduction into Europe and Asia and Africa. uh, Maybe you know, maybe you don't. Chili has become a huge part of different, you know, cuisines in those places as well. Um, having said that, let me go back to jambalaya, gumbo, and chili con carne as some of my favorite quote, American foods. Um, jambalaya was actually an attempt by Spanish settlers when they first came to the U.S., particularly um, the Panhandle area of Florida, Louisiana, around 15 15- and 1600s. There was it was their first attempt to make paella outside of Spain. And then with the arrival of slaves from Africa, as well as from the Caribbean, as well as Native Americans in that region, all of these different uh, groups have influenced Jambalaya and the same thing goes with gumbo. But gumbo actually started out with French settlers allying with Native Americans, again in Louisiana around 1700s. And that was the first iteration of gumbo. And then with the introduction of African as well as Caribbean slaves into the Panhandle area, Those influences also entered what today is known as gumbo. As far as chili con carne goes, uh, the first recorded instance of its existence is by a Franciscan friar during the time of the ancient Aztec empire, specifically in Tenochtitlan. Back then, it was just a stew with vegetables and chili peppers. Um, The way that the beef was introduced was actually by the Spanish when they you know, captured slash colonized what we today know as Mexico, uh, that part of the Aztec empire. And, you know, over the next few hundred years, it was still a thing of the, the working pl- class people, the regular people, but it didn't have its official, quote, American debut until a book written in the 1850s about the Mexican-American War. Um, and it was originally actually around that time that the way it became popularized, at least in the, I guess, modern, in the sense, you know, the past 150 years in the modern uh, iteration of chili con carne, it was actually the domain of working class Tejana and Mexican women. And it was created in Northern Mexico slash Southern Texas, that part of the US that used to be part of Mexico. So it has a long history of being associated uh, with obviously Tex-Mex cuisine, but also Southern cuisine. And now, you know, an American dish This is where I will end the extremely abbreviated, I guess, histories of jambalaya, gumbo, and chili con carne. And since we're still on chili peppers, real quick, I want to talk about hot sauces. Um, The history of hot sauce overlaps a lot with the history of chili peppers, so I'm not really going to go too much into it. Um, But what I did find interesting when I looked into Tabasco, because I really like Tabasco, um, the origin is actually disputed as to which of the two white men should deserve credit. The Maryland banker who moved to Louisiana or the slave owner in Louisiana who first had his own version of Tabasco. But obviously if you read between the lines, regardless of who gets the credit, um, especially if it is the slave owner, since his version predates the Maryland bankers one by I think about 20 years or so, credit is never actually given to the ones who probably did the work, aka the slaves. Um, the ones who are responsible for, you know, planning the meals, for, you know, um, harvesting the ingredients, buying them, etc. Things like that. So I thought that was a very interesting way of sanitizing the history of Tabasco. Um, and a lot of hot sauces today, they use chili pepper hybrids that are created in Latin America, the Caribbean, and Asia. Such as the Trinidad Scorpion or the Puchalokia Column commonly known as a ghost pepper. And what's interesting is that a lot of popular hot sauces today aren't even made by people of color. Um, what I find fascinating is that so many white people are such enthusiastic fans now of pepper cultivation and just spiciness in general. Because uh, I don't know if you know, but chili peppers are actually pretty hardy. Um, they can survive in temperate climates in like the you know where we live in the, um, the Northeast part of the US Uh, So they are, you know, obviously frost will totally kill them off, but not, you know, cold temperatures aren't enough to completely destroy. I think it's about time to wrap this up and get to my personal opinion about all of this. Um, Because there are many more, quote, American foods beyond the few that I mentioned that wouldn't exist without ingredients, culinary techniques, and histories that originate in various communities of color. Does this mean I now hate all these foods? Of course I don't. But context makes a difference. I figured out why the America is a melting pot phrase rubs me the wrong way, because it ignores the differences that inspire the creativity in each culture in favor of assimilation via appropriation. It reduces those differences to a pseudo-profound catchphrase that is in itself, in my opinion, disingenuous because it avoids difficult conversations for white people about those differences. When people call the U.S. a quote, melting pot, the phrase makes it easy not to have to think about the individual parts of a dish, never mind the people who created those dishes in the first place. My friend Kate, who you will hear in the next week or two um, on another topic that I'm going to be doing in the next week or two, had this to say um, after she listened to the apple pie part of this episode. Food, especially ethnic food, is such a great example of commodification of a country with people wanting, quote, authentic food, but not giving a shit about immigrants. Let that sink in. And just to follow up on that, you know, Chinese food, Japanese food like sushi and ramen, the Indian food that I mentioned in the last episode, Mexican food, all of these and more are now so ingrained in American food culture that they're basically a default in many Americans, you know, top five or top 10. And when I say Americans, I mean white people, since they're still the majority of this country. You know, you can find any or all of these and even the most suburban and rural parts of America. Like, I've gone through many road trips throughout the U.S. I've, you know, gone through bumfuck U.S. and I can still find a Chinese shop, an Indian food shop, a Mexican uh, food shop, you know? But... I don't know, do most Americans even think about the US history associated with each of these groups of people? You know, for example, we have the Chinese Exclusion Acts of 1882. You know, especially when you consider so much of the labor responsible for the railroads were Chinese immigrants. The internment of Japanese Americans during World War II was just obviously also straight up racist. You know, now even today, as well as for the past 30 years or so, immigration quotas that disproportionately affect India and China due to their sheer populations and the long and continued history of prejudice and violence against Mexican-Americans and those with Mexican heritage. You know, white people, especially the ones in power, they want to eat all the good food the rest of the world has to offer, but they don't want to give anything back, especially when you look at the current political climate in the U.S. Not just political, actually, even just social. If the administration and GOP and the people who support them have anything to say about it, they would rather take away than give anything back. Food as a global concept has always been fundamental to human existence, not just as physical sustenance, but emotional and mental as well as our species has evolved over the past 2 million years or so. And when it comes to different groups of people transplanting themselves in new environments with other groups of people, It's the foremost peace offering. For fuck's sake, cornbread is known as a cornerstone of Southern cuisine, but it's Native American in origin. What with corn and maize being native to this quote, new world. We all know how that story ended up for the natives. The effects of which can still be seen today in the US, Canada, and other parts of the Americas. And with many white Americans continued denial about racism endemic to this country, food is even more important as a weapon, in my opinion, to call out that bullshit. It isn't just food to the communities of color as it is to all of these white people, you know, just as a treat on a Friday night or going out on a date or having fun with friends and then forgetting about it the instant the meal is over. It's an anchor to our homelands, as well as to each other in this foreign land. You know, I thought I knew a decent amount before doing all of this, but it turns out I was just as ignorant. And it took me doing this research to understand even my own food trauma, like I mentioned in the last episode, and just to understand why food and its history is so important, not just to my people, but all peoples who have been subjugated to the garbage that is colonialism. And you know, even today, capitalistic imperialism. I've been more conscious about the environmental impacts of my own grocery habits for the past few years. But the research for these two episodes has taught me to go beyond that, even if it is just for my own sense of not contributing to the erasure of histories of color in food. You know, I don't know if this is a call of action for everyone so much as it is for myself, because I'm, I'm not the kind of person who wants to force my beliefs on other people's throats. But I do hope that this makes you think more about food you know, the food that you eat when you eat it. I mean, obviously, I myself, am going to screw up about this kind of mindset at some point, which I think is inevitable, because it's impossible, and also illogical to constantly be on guard about every single thing I ingest. But I think that the more I practice, the better I'll get at it. I mean, for example, I've I've never been a big meat eater in the first place just because of how I I grew up, you know, Indian culture um, has a long history of vegetarianism mostly because of the religion, but also philosophy and whatnot, you can look it up. But I cut back even more um, after watching Okja a few years ago, which led to me doing my own research on meat production in the US. But I know that that's a luxury that I have, luxury relatively speaking, because I still live paycheck to paycheck and technically I'm middle class and I don't even know what the fuck that means anymore. Um, I have the luxury of making that choice because I do have that steady paycheck. But I also know that that making sustainable food options isn't an option for a lot of people. Um, But even just taking the time to become aware, I think that's just a great way to increasing your own knowledge. It goes a long way to becoming And, you know, ultimately being a more socially responsible individual. My whole take on my existence is that if, you know, once I leave this world, if I'm not, if my, you know, my chart of pluses and minuses, if it's not going to be a net positive impact that I have on this, you know, world, I want it to at least be net zero and not net negative. That's my thing. And there you have my meandering, incoherent thoughts on food and cultural appropriation. As always, feel free to give me any feedback, any thoughts that you have um, on how this episode went or any of the other episodes. You can email me at pod.insincerely.yours at gmail.com. That is also the handle for the Instagram pod.insincerely.yours if you have my number or if you have line or any of the other messaging apps that I'm on feel free to contact me there as well I'm always looking for constructive criticism especially because this was a semi-improv episode and I'm sure you guys felt that because I felt it deep in my bones I sweat and balls here guys not just because it's hot but also because I'm nervous whatever whatever anyway thanks as always to all of you friends and family listening I really appreciate it um insincerely yours, John V.